Good morning, all. Good to be uh, good to be back. We've been around a few other places lately, and uh, it's always nice to come back back home again. As we still regard this as our home church, even though we spend a lot of time in other churches. Uh, as you move around, you learn to appreciate uh, what you have in your home church, and we certainly do that. Uh, not that. Not that we don't have a great time going to other places, but there's just something special about coming back to BBC after 20-odd years here. It's uh, become very special to us, and so it's nice to come back. And, of course, every time we come back, there are people that we don't know. So uh, um, maybe we'll get to meet you. But we're not here again for another few weeks, so I don't know. Let's open our Bibles at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we're continuing on with uh, this discourse uh, of Jesus in the upper room, and uh, it's uh, we're sort of going to break in on it again um, and just consider a small portion today, and we're going to be reading in chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. Verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you might believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Adele's grandfather, Chris Norris, died as a relatively young man. And uh, on his deathbed, he said to his son, his oldest child, who was Adele's father, Gordon, I want you to look after your mother. You see, he was concerned that the family might continue on. He was concerned about leaving a relatively young widow, a 21-year-old son and three younger daughters. Son, look after your mother. Well, in this discourse, Jesus is looking after his followers. He's ensuring that when he goes, they will have everything they need to continue on and to do well. That's his concern in these chapters, 13 through to 17, known as the Upper Room Discourse. And we're just, we're just taking a snippet of this dialogue here where Jesus is talking with his disciples. There are some things that he puts in place 
so that they might be able to continue on after he's gone. Because if you cast your mind back to the very start of this chapter, you remember he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And we came across that expression again in our reading now. Don't let your hearts be troubled. That tells us that the disciples were starting to get worried. With Jesus talking about going away, they're starting to become anxious. How will they get on without their master? How will they get on without their teacher? How will they get on without the miracle worker? The one who actually gives them some credibility. And they're getting anxious. 14, chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but I'll come again. That's what he's telling them. And that's the theme of his discourse. And here we find it again. He's telling them he's going away, but he's preparing them. He wants them to be ready for his departure. And we're going to go through and have a look at what he does to prepare his disciples, his followers, and by extension, all of us, for his absence. Let us not forget why John is writing this book. Now, just remember that John is writing this book probably about 60 years after these events happened. So there's been a huge time span And he's recording this for the church that is now, by the time John writes this, it's developed and it's growing all around the Mediterranean world. Right from northern Africa, right around through Asia and Europe. And the church is flourishing at the end of the first century when John writes this and he's reminding them again of these facts about Jesus. And so the verse that we've been looking at so many times in these studies as we've gone through John is chapter 20 and verse 31 where he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's remember that. It's good to keep coming back to that. And I know Sam has been bringing us back to that key verse that purpose verse at the end of his, of his gospel over and over again. And I want you to be reminded of that again today. That's why John is recording this some 60 years after the events that happened for a church that is now expanding and flourishing and yet under persecution. And so let's have a look at these verses and see what, what the Lord Jesus is doing to provide for his people. Well, the first couple of verses tell us that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come. Have a look at those verses. Verse uh, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let me ask you, how did John remember with such detail events that had happened six decades earlier? As he recorded this gospel, how did he remember such detail? Well, obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and reminded him, brought to his attention the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, the things that he did and said, and John was able to record them under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, as is all Scripture recorded. 
So he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Now, he calls him the helper. In the ESV, he's called the helper. If you look at other versions, he might be called the comforter or whatever. And I've got a concordance at home, and, and it actually takes four and a half, fairly big concordance, and it takes four and a half pages to try and explain the meaning of the word that Jesus used here. That sometimes we just, in English, we say paraclete, and, and, or helper, or comforter. And, and it's really hard for us to get our head around exactly what this word means. It takes four and a half pages of a scholar to try and explain it. And you know how he finishes up? He says, maybe the best word is just friend. Friend. The Holy Spirit is going to come and be your friend. So there are all these, all these different varieties of thought, how he comes alongside. Yes, he does support you as your advocate. In fact, the very same word is used of Jesus in 1 John 2 and 1. John seems to like this word, so he uses it again, referring to Jesus. He said, we have an advocate with the Father. It's exactly the same word. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's trying to get across this person who's going to come, is going to be your helper, he's going to be your advocate, He's going to be my emissary. He's going, to be, he's going to be your friend. He's going to be your supporter. He's going to stand with you. And he's going to teach you, we're told here. He's going to teach you. Jesus said he will teach you. And there are other places as we go further into the next chapter where we discover other roles of the Spirit of God. And I'm sure we'll leave that for others to explore. But isn't, aren't, you glad, aren't you glad the Holy Spirit came? I mean, how would you be? Earlier in the chapter, Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you on your own. You're going to have someone to come to be with you. He calls him earlier on another helper, somebody to take the place of Jesus. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said, when I go back, somebody else is going to take my place. Somebody else is going to be my representative. And he's going to be with you. You're worried about me going away. Thomas, you're really worried, aren't you? Peter, you're worried. John, what about you? But you're all worried about me going away. But hey, I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm going to send someone else like me, someone else who's going to come and take my place and will be with you as your helper, as your friend, as your teacher, as your advocate, your paraclete. What a wonderful gift it is. What wonderful preparation Jesus was making for. Do you think they understood it? I doubt they understood it. Or they understood it when we come over to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when the Holy Spirit came and the effects and the power of the Spirit of God in their lives as they went out as witnesses, powerfully telling the good news. Oh, they knew about it then. They understood a lot more about it then. And of course, later on in the epistles, uh, particularly Paul expounds that for us, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church. So the Holy Spirit, the second thing he talks about is peace. He says, I leave my peace with you. Have a look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. There it is. 
Neither let them be afraid or neither let them be cowardly is the thought there with the word afraid. He's going to give them his peace. He's leaving his peace with them. In those days, as the disciples heard that, in those days, this word peace could be both a greeting and a farewell. So when somebody met someone, they would say, peace. And when they left, they would say, peace. And it was, could be just a flippant um, part of conversation, a greeting or a farewell. But another way that they could have understood this idea of peace was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. That was a common expression in that time because Rome had secured peace in that part of the world. And the Roman Empire, by might, had brought peace. And there was a time of great peace across the empire, and it was enforced peace. So there was a negative aspect to that peace, Pax Romana. You see, it was a peace that was secured by warfare. It was secured and kept by force. But Jesus said, I'm not giving you peace like the world gives you. My peace is not just a casual greeting or a casual farewell. My peace is not the Pax Romana, a peace that is kept by force. My peace is different. I don't give you the peace that the world gives you. I give you my peace, my peace. Jesus gives an inner peace. And it's not based on external circumstances or the environment. The peace that Jesus gives and gives to his disciples, gives to us today, to help us to cope in a world that is in turmoil and darkness, it's his peace. I give you my peace, he said. My peace I leave with you. That's the peace we have, brothers and sisters. It's the peace that Jesus gives not dependent on external situations or circumstances. It's a sort of peace that we see in some of the followers of Jesus. You think about, think about Paul and Silas, and they're imprisoned in a jail, a Roman jail in Philippi. They've been beaten, their feet are in the stocks, and at midnight it says, Paul and Silas, what did they do? They, they prayed and they sang hymns to God. What? That's the sort of peace that Jesus gives. This is the sort of peace that despite the turmoil or the darkness or the difficulty or the pain, we can still experience. It's, it's the peace that Jesus gives. Let me refer you to uh, John 16 just across the page, if you'd like to turn over to it, John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you see, the peace that Jesus is talking about has got nothing to do with external issues. He says, in fact, Jesus says to his followers, these same followers, just a little bit later, in the world you will have tribulation. Some versions say in the world you will have trouble. You know that, don't you? We have trouble. 
I mean, we don't have as much trouble as a lot of people, but we all have trouble. But even in that trouble or in that tribulation, we can know his peace. That's what he said in chapter 16, verse 33. I've said these things to you that, are, that you may have peace. And all of this discourse that Jesus is, is, uh, is giving you, this talk that he's giving to his disciples, it's all for this purpose so that they would be prepared. And this feature is prominent that you might have peace. I mean, peace is a prominent word in the New Testament. I think it's 476 times or something. It's, it's actually used in the New Testament. It's actually used of God. He is the God of peace. It's an important concept for Christians. And you think of our brothers and sisters in some parts of the world. We've been reminded already this morning about our brothers and sisters in that part of the world, in Ukraine and countries round about there. We've seen some snippets of that on television, on news reports. And we get a little bit of a glimpse of what it must be like to live in that sort of an environment with bombs raining down and buildings crumbling and people running for their lives. The interesting thing is that the word is coming back from some of the believers in that country, in Romania, uh, sorry, yes, in Romania, in Poland, in Ukraine, some of the other countries around there. The word is coming back and the believers are fearlessly facing this conflict to support one another and to help others. Why would it be? How can they, how can they stand strong in that sort of turmoil and warfare? Because they have the peace of God. They, they have taken what Jesus offered. I give you my peace. Do you need it now? Of course you do. Will you need it tomorrow? Of course you will. Jesus said, I, this is how I'm going to prepare you. I leave you my peace. And we can know the peace of God. And Paul tells us that it's beyond understanding. It surpasses understanding. And in that little context in Philippians chapter 4, where he's talking about casting all our anxiety, all our cares on him and praying. And he says, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we want? We want the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds. And no matter what your burden is, no matter what trial you're facing or experiencing, that's God's provision for you. Jesus has left you his peace. And he wants you to experience it. He wants you to take hold of what he has offered to you. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. There was a, you may have heard this story. There was once, a, I believe it's a true story. There was a community once and they decided to have a, an art competition. And, and the theme was peace. People were to provide uh, artists were to provide a painting that depicted peace. And you can imagine there were all sorts of beautiful, tranquil scenes, both uh, landscapes and seascapes. And they were judged eventually. And finally, this is the one that actually won the competition. And you look at it and you say, where's the peace in that? There's a, a huge waterfall rumbling down. There's a storm in the background. But what the artist depicted was, and you can, you can hardly see it, there's a little bird nesting there in the crevice in the rock. 
And the artist was saying, no matter how much turmoil there is round about, this little bird found peace. This little bird nestling there in the crevice in the rock found peace. That's a picture of the peace that Jesus gives us. No matter what storms may come, no matter what turmoil there might be around you, no matter what darkness pervades, you can find peace in the cleft of the rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me. We find our peace in Jesus, not in circumstances or surroundings. The next one we want to look at is Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you should be rejoicing. Now, they obviously weren't. And he said, if you loved me, you would rejoice that I go to the Father. So the indication from that is that they were neither loving him nor rejoicing. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father. You see, their rejoicing had pretty well, had pretty well rung out. I mean, they'd had some great times with Jesus. Not very long before this, they'd proudly walked into Jerusalem with Jesus. <laughs> he was the Hosanna, Hosanna. And everybody was excited about Jesus. And, and they were there. They were part of the excitement. They were rejoicing with all the people. But it's run dry. It's run dry because they don't understand. They, they, they haven't grasped what Jesus is talking about. And all they can think about is themselves. Theirs is a selfish love. It's, it's all about what we can get, that what Jesus can do for us, how we can ride on his coattails. That's what it was all about. But Jesus said, you should be rejoicing that I'm going to the Father. Wayne, thanks for reminding us this morning that Jesus' love for the Father took him to the cross. Oh yes, our sins had to be dealt with at the cross. The debt had to be paid. The work had to be completed. But it was because of Jesus' love to the Father that he went to the cross. He obeyed his Father. And we'll come to that at the end of our passage. You see, these disciples... These disciples were only thinking about themselves and the now. And I don't, I grapple with it. I do not understand the intimacy of the Godhead. But, and they didn't understand that. They didn't understand how important it was for Jesus to go back to his father. You know, there's an intimacy and John expresses it in a number of places in his gospel. He, he, he says things like this. Jesus says, the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son and has committed all things to him. Another time he says, the Father loves the Son and has put all things into his hands. There's an intimacy in the Godhead that we, we don't really grasp. And, and these disciples, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how important it was for Jesus to go back to his Father. And Jesus said, if you understood that, you'd be happy, you'd be rejoicing with me that I go to the Father. If you really loved me, you would rejoice with me that I'm going back to the Father. And there's a little difficult verse there that says that the Father is greater than I. Uh, you, you know, of course, and of course, if you don't know, 
go back and read the early, early verse chapters of John, John will tell you, he'll reinforce it over and over again, that, that the Father and the Son, they're one. The Godhead is one. So it's not that Jesus is not saying, well, the Father is superior to me and I'm sort, of, I'm sort of down the rung a little bit. I'm a lesser God. That's not the meaning at all. It's, it's, I believe it is that while I'm in my human form, I, do, I have all sorts of restrictions and Jesus took on all sorts of restraints and restrictions in his human form. He says, I want to go back to the Father. When he goes back to the Father, what happened when he went back to the Father? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is higher than every name. And Jesus is looking forward to going back to his Father. The other thing that's important about, it's not in this passage, but it's over in the next chapter. The other thing that's important about Jesus going back to the Father that should make us rejoice is that it was only when he went back to the Father that the Holy Spirit could come. At church camp, we had a trivia night the first night. And um, different individuals, part of the night was different individuals were chosen um, with a, a list of questions and they had to write down the answer to questions, and then a, a, one of the groups had to guess what their answer would be. Well, our group had to, had to guess what Steve Hill would write down. And one of the questions was, if you could go back in time, when would you like to live? Well, we thought maybe he'd like to go back to the time of the reformers. But anyway, he said, no, he said, I'd like to go back and live in Jesus' time. Just one problem with that, Steve. I mean, I reckon we all like would think that way. We'd all think, oh man, wouldn't it have been great just to be there on the hillside with Jesus? Wouldn't it have been lovely to, to be at the wedding in Cana? Wouldn't it have been nice to hear him teaching? Wouldn't it have been great to be there by the tomb of Lazarus? We all have those feelings, don't we? We'd like to have been there. But there's a problem with that. Jesus' ministry was geographical. It was local. And on one or two occasions, he actually did signs at a distance. But usually you had to be there where he was. And so we'd all be on pilgrimages to Israel to be with Jesus, to see Jesus. But guess what? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is totally different. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent and his ministry is universal. And it doesn't matter whether you're sitting here in Bundaberg or whether you're in North Korea as a Christian or whether you're in Africa or India or wherever, the Holy Spirit is there. And you don't have to go to a special place to find him. You don't need a pilgrimage to find the Holy Spirit. He finds you. He comes and regenerates you. He comes and lives in you. He comes to be your helper no matter where you are. My brother has a ministry uh, reaching out to people, most of the ministry is reaching out to people in prison with correspondence courses. And there are many, many men and women in prisons around Australia and the Holy Spirit's there. And some of them will never be out. They'll be there for the rest of their life, but they've become Christians in prison and the Holy Spirit is there behind the bars. He's living in them. You see, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit could only happen if Jesus went back to the Father. And man, we should rejoice about that. The other thing that Jesus is concerned about, and of course, John in this 
in this uh, gospel is super concerned about is the issue of belief. And if we have a look at the, the verses in uh, verse, uh, let's see, verse 29, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, that is that he's going away, so that when it does take place, you may believe. What, what Jesus is doing is he is giving his followers and any others evidence, super strong evidence, so that they can truly know who he is that they can know that this Jesus is indeed the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's John's concern because that was Jesus' concern. And he wants them to have this belief. And so he leaves the evidence for them. A number of times, and we won't look at them now, but on a number of occasions, he actually says this. He says, I'm telling you this so that later on you'll see it happen and you'll believe. You remember Thomas? You remember Thomas, one of the followers, one of the disciples? He wasn't there. This is after Jesus had been raised and he appeared to his disciples on that first Sunday after the, of the resurrection. And Thomas wasn't there. And he didn't see Jesus come through the locked doors or whatever, however he got in there. But a week later, he was there and Jesus came and showed him the wounds of Calvary because he knew all about what Thomas had said. He knew all about Thomas's doubts. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and believe. So what we see is by faith. We're not there treading along, trekking along behind Jesus and seeing all this. We're not in the upper room listening to his words, but we believe that this is the inspired word of God. We believe what John tells us here is the truth because it's inspired by God. And we accept that. And so we accept the evidence because we know that these things that he said would happen did happen. We're more blessed than these who were there. We're more blessed than the disciples who were listening to him speak. Because we now look back and we say, he said it would happen and it did happen. He said it would happen and it did happen. He said it would happen and it did happen. And we believe. In the early 1970s, a, an author by the name of Josh McDowell produced a book. And the title was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In 2018, he and his son, Sean, have republished that book, um, an expanded version of it, a more modern sort of version of it, still the same title, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's sort of an apologetic book, all right? Uh, pretty heavy going. But I just want to pick up that title, I just want to pick up that thought, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You see... You have all the evidence that you need to believe. God has made sure that you have all the evidence you need 
Jesus was making sure his disciples had all the evidence they needed to believe. And we have more evidence than they had. We have the evidence of creation. We have the evidence of the death, the factual, historical evidence of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. We have the evidence of the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit because in chapter 16 we find that the Holy Spirit not only has a ministry to the believer, but he has a ministry to the unbeliever to convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment to come. And so there's the work of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and reminding people of the responsibility they have to respond to the evidence. Now I'm wondering where you sit. Where's your verdict? What's your verdict? There's the evidence of Jesus. And he wants you to believe. That's why he's leaving the evidence for his followers. That's why he has provided so much for us. Evidence. And it demands a verdict. You can say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care because I'm going to go my way. I have the right to make my own choice and you are absolutely right, you do. So you can reject the evidence. As happened on occasions in the, in the historical writings of the Bible, namely the book of Acts, you find some people who say, hmm, we'll think about it another time. We'll procrastinate. You find that in Acts chapter 17. Some of the people, when they listened to Paul, they listened to the evidence that he presented and some rejected him, they laughed at him and others procrastinated. They said, ah, we'll have a think about this. And there are a lot of people who do that. But it's a very, very unwise response. But of course, I know that most people here today and many listening to us today watching this You've simply said, that is evidence that I cannot deny. That is evidence that I cannot reject. That is evidence that I must respond to. And I believe. I accept Jesus for who he says he is. I accept him for his work on the cross on my behalf. I accept him. I believe. And John's up in heaven going, that's what I want. And Jesus extends his arms to you today and says, that's what I want. I just want you to believe. That's what it's all about. I want you to believe. Evidence, the demands of verdict. Reject, procrastinate, or believe. Love. There's a beautiful example right at the end of this. I mean, we've already talked about Jesus saying to his disciples, if you love me, inferring that they weren't, not to the depth they should, if you love me, you would rejoice that I go to the Father. But we get this beautiful example of what we've been talking about quite a lot in this book, and particularly over the last couple of weeks, right at the end of our passage. Have a look at the last couple of verses. Verse uh, 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. 
He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So what's he talking about? The rule of this world coming. Well, if you go back a little bit, you'll find that uh, in the upper room, earlier on in the upper room, it says that Satan entered into Judas and he went out to organize the betrayal. So it's quite possible that that's what Jesus is referring. I think that's what Jesus is referring to here in the short term. That in the person of Judas, Satan was coming and he was coming to lay claim on Jesus. Oh, and I just read through the crucifixion, the, the uh, betrayal and, and the Gethsemane story and the Calvary story again this morning. And with this verse in the back of my mind, and the soldiers came and, they, and Jesus stepped forward. He said, who are you looking for? Oh, they told him and, and, and he said, I'm here. And they fell backwards. But they got up again and they bound him. And they led him away to Annas, to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate. And you go, Satan's got him. Satan's got him. Jesus said, Satan comes and he has no claim on me. Why did he have no claim on him? Because he was without sin. He was without sin. Satan only has claim on sinners. He had no claim on Jesus. What was the cross all about? What was Jesus? Why was Jesus going to the cross? Not because Satan came in the form of Judas. Not because soldiers, strong Roman soldiers bound him. Not because Pilate sentenced him. Not because the soldiers nailed him. It was because of his love for the Father. This was why he went to the cross. For his love for the Father. And the Father... God the Father, Paul tells us, bruised him at the cross. He bruised him. And Jesus there stood between God, a righteous, angry God, and wretched, helpless sinners, and he took the punishment and he paid the debt and he can set us free. Because he loved the Father. And he did what the Father asked him to do. And the Father sent him to the cross, and he willingly went. Gethsemane, he said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And again this morning, the majority of us, redeemed sinners, saved by the grace of God, living spirit-filled lives, loving our Saviour, not as we should, but loving him nonetheless, we say thank you to our Lord Jesus because he loved the Father enough to go to the cross, to take our place, to die in our place, and to bring glory to the Father through the salvation of souls. So, did he prepare for us? Did he prepare for his people? Did he prepare, prepare for us? Of course he did. He's sent the Holy Spirit. He gives us his peace. We can rejoice today because he went back to the Father. And so many of us can rejoice that we've come to know him. We've believed. We've believed the evidence. And we're children of the living God. 
And we can look at the beautiful example of the love of our Lord Jesus and seek to emulate that. He loved the Father and so he obeyed his commands. And that's, as we learnt last week, that's the evidence of our love for our Lord, that we obey his commands. Now an interesting little thing, and I'm just going to finish with this. The last few words, Jesus says, rise, let us get going, let us be going. But then you've still got chapter 16, sorry, chapter 15, chapter 16 and chapter 17, before in the beginning of chapter 18, you find them going to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is only a, it's not a big issue. Uh, different people have different ideas about it. Was it that they, Jesus said, come on, let's get going, but they stayed there a while longer while he talked some more, what we have in 15, 16 and 17? Or did that happen on the way to the garden? Did they actually leave the upper room then and somewhere along the way, maybe at the temple or somewhere, they stopped and Jesus said what we have in chapters 15, 16 and 17. You might have an idea on that and Sam might have an idea on it. I don't know whether anybody's got conclusive evidence either way, but I just thought we should mention it, seeing that little passage is there and it can be a little bit confusing. I'm going to leave it there. But none of us actually leave it there, do we? We all go away now and process what we've read today, the words of Jesus, the thoughts that the Holy Spirit has brought to us, the convictions that he's brought to us. We go away and we chew on that, don't we? I mean, maybe while we're having a coffee or having a chat out there, let's talk about it. Maybe we'll just support each other a little more in thinking through this passage and during the week, those of us who are in home groups will be chewing over it again. I've got to, got to write the questions yet too, reminds me. But we'll be looking at it again, won't we? And thinking about these things. The Holy Spirit coming, what a blessing. The peace that Jesus gives to us, no matter what the world offers to us, the peace that he gives us, the rejoicing that we can know as his children, understanding the mission of the Saviour that we have believed and that we can live out that love in obedience to him. Thank you.